Daniil, thank you for sitting down with me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, but before we get started, please introduce yourself. Great. Thank you for having me on the podcast. My name is Daniil Shapiro. I am uh, I lead alternative investments research efforts at Cerulli Associates, which is a wealth management research and consulting firm based in Boston. Oh, that sounds like a really interesting position. And I'm sure you come across so many uh, very cool insights because Cerulli is a data powerhouse. Yeah, we're <laughs> absolutely. We're constantly in the field. We're surveying financial advisors. We're surveying asset management industry executives across a whole range of topics across our practices. We're constantly holding research calls with financial advisors, executives. So yeah, a lot of really interesting insights. Uh, definitely. Now you said survey, um, which is actually a perfect segue because we have our survey in market right now as well, our voice of the advisor survey. And one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you was because you're sort of specializing in the alternative investment space. And what we've noticed with our survey year over year is that advisors are wanting more and more alternatives. Uh, which I, I think is partly because of just the market volatility and the very, very low interest rates that we've had for the past decade. Um, so obviously they need to get that growth and return somehow. And it seems like alternatives is the way that they are going. So what have you been seeing from the advisory community? Yeah, there are a few really interesting trends that are coalescing here at the same exact time. It's almost as if there is this perfect market environment for alternative investments where advisors are looking for downside protection, they're looking for inflation protection, they're looking for greater income, they're looking for enhanced returns all at the same time. But the reality is when we poll advisors, what we learn is that their allocations to alternative investments currently are actually very, very low. They are mid-single-digit allocations across alternatives and commodities, liquid and illiquid combined. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of room to grow their allocate those allocations. And what advisors really need help with is integrating alternative investments into their practices. So learning about the products, figuring out how to communicate those products to their clients. Right. It's interesting you say uh, asset allocation because I feel like alternatives are there's kind of piping up for the, a placement in the asset allocation, right? It's no longer just like a one-off that you do for a client. There, uh, I've been hearing that there are some teams and some firms that, you know, kind of have alternatives as a part of their overall allocation model, just because yeah. this is something that's been used more and more often. That's exactly right. It really depends on the practice. So if it's one financial advisor, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to integrate alternative investments. They have to do a whole lot of work in terms of getting an understanding of the products, figuring out which of their clients are qualified in order to use those products, and then integrating those exposures that's kind of working through the subscription processes, etc. But if you, on the other hand, are an advisor with a home office with um, or just a large internal due diligence team, in your firm, in your practice, that's really a completely different story. You, It's likely that your practice, you may well be experts at evaluating alternative investment products. You may have a range of alternative investment products on the shelf available to choose from. So that makes it a completely different story in terms of uh, beginning to allocate to some of these products. Right. And you bring up the uh, the shelf, the product shelf, which kind of triggers, you know, asset managers in my mind, because obviously whenever there is a demand from uh, advisors, the yeah. asset managers are there trying to meet it. So what are the managers doing? How are they trying to, you know, cater 
to this uh, type of advisor? There's a lot of work to be done by asset managers here. So at the very outset, we are looking at product development efforts. So what we've seen in the last few years is this absolute wave of intermittent liquidity products. So we've seen asset managers acquire other asset managers in order to bring these products closer to to financial advisors, to not just the ultra high net worth, but the high net worth, the wealth market. So these products, there's a new wave of intermittent liquidity product, which is um, able, um, these products can serve even um, mass affluent clients. So you don't even need to be an accredited investor anymore because these products have some kind of liquidity, whether it's quarterly liquidity, um, it's enhanced versus a prior generation of completely liquid alternative investment offerings. So what managers are doing is developing these intermittent liquidity products that can be used by a wider variety of advisors. And then the second part of this is, of course, providing education to advisors. So some of them are building out education platforms. That's Blackstone University. So that's kind of how do you provide that training to the financial advisor? And then beyond that, it's all about content, thought leadership, and then working hand in hand with the advisor to help them start to allocate to some of these products. Right. That That's really interesting because <laughs> obviously... You know, when um, moving downstream, democratizing alternatives, because for the longest time, to your point, it was all about being an accredited investor, yeah. right? And so there was like this elite group of uh, clients or investors who had access to these products, but that's no longer the case. Uh, really, it could be innovation or just, you know, uh, as, as the saying goes, need is uh Need is the greatest, uh, oh my goodness, I'm completely butchering this. But essentially, wh whenever you really need something, yeah. you know, it becomes a necessity. Right. right. And so for the longest time, because we had this, like, uh, again, very, very uh, low interest rate, essentially close to zero. Yeah. It created a need to provide these products to everyone because you couldn't just hold on um, to them for the so-called elite uh, clients anymore, right? You had to be able to cater to everyone that was yeah. wanting to be a part of the market. So this is almost, this is kind of part two of the discussion. It's, you have to look at the current market environment and kind of, and evaluate which of the exposures are the best fit. So to some extent, we've seen this tremendous growth in private markets. We've seen the build out of private equity capabilities, of course, but also private credit. And the question for advisors right now is if these private credit exposures are still really attractive to allocate to, or if they should be looking somewhere else. But there certainly is this understanding that, yes, public markets alone are not going to be able to solve all of their needs. Mm -hmm. um, and they need to look a little bit further, but they still have to be very, very careful in terms of the exposures they're allocating to. Definitely. Now, uh, just in case there's uh, any confusion out there, when we say alternatives, uh, what specific types of products uh, are you guys necessarily looking at? We uh, have a very wide definition of alternative investment products. We include alternative investments, commodities. So it's anything that's not a traditional stock and bond strategy. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the universe, you have, let's call it a trillion dollars in U.S. liquid alternative product. And then you have that's uh, mutual funds, ETFs. That could be a product like GLD. It could be a uh, real estate ETF uh, or a real estate mutual fund. So that's that's liquid alternatives. But increasingly, where our, our attention is focused on is that intermittent liquidity slice, which is almost quarterly liquidity. So those are non-traded REITs, non-traded BDCs, um, interval funds, tender offer funds. That's a really interesting ecosystem because when you consider that there are trillions and trillions of dollars that are in completely illiquid, mm -hmm. um, 
alternative investment assets, that's private equity, private credit, infrastructure, also completely liquid real estate, there's a lot of room to take some of that some of those completely illiquid exposures and to add a liquidity sleeve and to push them down into that much smaller intermittent liquidity slice, which is only right now several hundred billion dollars. So it almost makes sense to push so, to add liquidity to some of those illiquid strategies. And to be fair, we actually we expect institutions to look to asset managers and say, look, there's no reason that some of these strategies have absolutely no liquidity built in, right? And some of these um, some of these funds are having their are having are being extended further and further out so it only makes sense that institutions eventually also kind of look at this these intermittent liquidity exposures and say maybe this is where we should be investing right and i feel like that makes these products more attractive because uh, like i think back to my time in industry and investing in hedge funds for instance right Uh, and one of the issues was these uh just lock-in periods and yeah. the fact that there was no liquidity possibly for, you know, a year. And then when you had a redemption window, it was for a certain amount. And if, you know, if once they met their threshold, that was kind of it, which even for affluent investors, sometimes it, it made it a bit unattractive because there was a possibility that you were just stuck yeah. with that vehicle for who knows how long. That's, that's exactly it. And you're going to have certain funds which absolutely have that leverage and they're going to be able to get whichever terms that they are comfortable with. If you are a top tier, top performing hedge fund or if you uh, for a certain amount of your private capital assets, right? If you are the absolute expert in a particular space, you can call the shots. But we think that for a greater variety of managers across these strategies, there's kind of there's a lot of room there for investors to take a little bit more control back mm-hmm. and to request that liquidity. Yeah, it, it definitely makes sense that you know you would want to have that flexibility, especially with the way the current markets are right now, because it's uh, you know you get some piece of legislation that yeah. can upturn everything. So having that flexibility to be able to get out and shift in a very agile fashion yeah. has become very important. Um, now, I am curious, like I've noticed that really has done some pieces on direct indexing as well. Sure. So uh, let's talk a bit about that. Um, first of all, let's start with how prominent is direct indexing in the market from your perspective currently? I would say it's very prominent, but it is growing more and more prominent over time. Um, I think there is this greater understanding right now that uh, yeah, tax customization, tax optimization rather, is very, very important. It's an important capability that that is pre- being brought further and further down market. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, because at first when we spoke about direct indexing, it was considered maybe a customization tool. It was considered maybe how do you fine tune a strategy for ESG or how do you deliver a thematic exposure? But now there's this recognition this is a serious tax optimization tool that more and more investors need access to. So it is absolutely growing more and more predominant in the market. There's this greater understanding that advisors need to offer it. Mm-hmm. in order to be able to best serve their clients. Well, definitely. It, I mean, that's sort of how uh, SMA started, right? Was to provide these benefits. But again, as we were speaking about earlier, it wasn't very democratized. It was, you know, certain uh, investors that had access to to SMA. So I, I feel like direct indexing could be an extension of that where now it's used to democratize. And instead of, you know, being... For instance, a Berkshire Hathaway share, right? Like I, there aren't too many people out there who can afford to go out there and have a hundred shares of Berkshire Hathaway, right? 
but um, or even one share for some folks. So, but now you can go and you can get a piece of it possibly if uh, if it's supported by whatever uh, platform you're with that uh, has direct indexing. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think, yeah, we originally would have been speaking about this as kind of maybe some kind of niche offering, mm -hmm. but in reality, tax optimization is incredibly important for investors, it makes a difference in terms of the bottom line. So from that tax, tax optimization perspective, and then there, there are of course, obvious, uh, there are other uses such as transition management, concentrated positions. So uh, there are a lot of really good use cases for direct indexing, which we believe makes it really important for advisors to have access to it. Well, definitely. And there, uh, again, everyone has a different situation. So there are some situations that are very sophisticated and complex. Yeah. And so this is a great tool in those scenarios. Again, you bring up concentration. Um, that can be a very big deal, especially if uh, you know, you're an insider or if you yeah. have certain restrictions on some shares. Yeah. You know, having access to a tool like direct indexing can help you really manage your risk, but also your allocations. That's exactly it. And I think that some of the most difficult situations that advisors face are some of these concentrated positions where maybe yeah, a client would face a severe tax hit if they were to sell that position at a particular point in time. So these solutions are just very, very critical. And these are yeah, very obvious situations for advisors in certain cases. Right. Now, I'm curious, have you guys been looking at, because we're speaking about alternatives and customization, have you guys been looking at digital assets at all? We do. Um, I have a colleague whose name is Matt Akarian, who is very, very focused yeah. on digital um, on uh, digital assets. Yeah, that I, I think that's a really interesting topic and uh, a topic that I look to explore more in the future, because there's... It, you know, there's obviously some contention when it comes to digital assets, but I think that there's also a lot of opportunity there and a lot of uh, diversity just because of all these, you know, unique coins that keep coming out. There's a lot of innovation in that space. Yeah, we might need to get uh, Matt Akarian onto your <laughs> podcast. And I did catch uh, the session yesterday with Matt Hogan. So it's kind of, it's really, yeah. it's really interesting to see their expectations for the space. Obviously, you have a lot of investors that have been very burned. But at the same time, um, we are constantly hearing from private equity executives, from other industry executives, about how they're using blockchain in their funds. So we're no longer talking about Bitcoin, we're talking about blockchain. And it's all just, yeah, it's incredibly interesting to us. Right. I mean, I've actually had a few conversations with uh, individuals who I'll say are a bit more on the traditional side. They've been in the industry for a very long time. And when they heard about digital assets and Bitcoins and Ethereum, like, it just it didn't see the sort of the intrinsic value of it, right, which made them turn away. But my argument always has been that I, I think of it as similar to the internet, where the blockchain is the internet and all yeah. these tokens that are on it or currencies, they're, they're like different websites, right? And I mean, I... I I'm a bit too young for to remember what happened with the uh, you know the tech bubble crashes uh, in the early 2000s, late 90s, but like those websites have gone away, but the internet's still yeah. here. We everything runs on it, and similarly, I've seen a lot of different institutions employ employ blockchain. Yeah. Insurance companies, particularly, are doing some very cool uh, things with it. So I feel like that there's a stigma in people to separate Bitcoin from blockchain. And then once they do that, they can see some real value within that technology. It's, and it's a very interesting thing because our industry, asset and wealth management, is exceptionally conservative. And we almost, now there are some firms that just in the last couple of years have raised their hands and said, oh, ETFs are not a fad. 
So it takes a really long time for some of these technologies to filter through. And for what it's worth, blockchain and Bitcoin have been particularly controversial. So it's not surprising that folks like even myself are really split in terms of where this goes from here. Yeah, and that's fair. I, uh, I, I just I'm amazed by the innovation uh, that's happening in that space. Now, before we wrap up, um, you know, what do you guys see for the future, like 2023 and beyond? What are you expecting from the alternatives market or just from uh, any innovation in the industry, really, that you've been researching? Well, I think my core focus right now is this intermittent liquidity space. And there are a lot of very exciting things happening there. So there is this wave of product proliferation. You have advisors that have access to better and better products. So more advisors have access to better product from better managers. But at the same time, there's almost this wave of reality, which is coming from the market, which is that you're seeing a little bit of a credit crunch. You're seeing a little bit of market weakness. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what happens between this product proliferation wave and maybe some of the headwinds that you're seeing in the market? And what our expectation would be is maybe a little bit of investor hesitance little bit of hesitancy as investors are allocating to these products. Maybe there has to be a little bit more product competition, maybe even some product rationalization in the next year or so as you face some of these headwinds. But over time, we expect investors to have access to better and better exposures. We expect a better, more stable market. Definitely. And I think competition usually brings a lot of that with it, exactly. which, is, which is fantastic because more options is not a bad thing in my opinion. That's right. It drives competition <laughs> and makes everything better for the investor. Exactly. You know, competition, I feel like, is what helps drive innovation, right? And if you're happy and you don't even really need to make a change, then nothing will change and it'll just stay flat, right? And you want some acceleration and competition gets you that. Uh, well, Danielle, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for chatting with me. Thank you for speaking with me.